Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 8, which can be found on page 776 of the Pew Bible. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thanks, Libby. Hey everyone, we're going to take a break this week from the Second Peter series, and Lloyd's going to finish it up next week. After that, starting on Easter, we're going to do a series in the Psalms called Feeling Better, which is going to be about how we, ac- we actually need to learn how to feel better before we're going to feel better, and how the Psalms teach us how to use our emotions and point them towards God and all that, and it's going to be so great. You're just going to be... So this morning, um, I'm going to talk about something that I've been waiting for a Sunday where we could do this for a while. The elders have been kind of after me about this to preach on it. It's been on their hearts, and it's been on my heart in a growing way the more I've been studying it in the last couple of months. Um, So let's start this way. Hold on, I need to turn this on for it to work. Okay. Um, So let's start um, this way. So one of the things that we don't tend to talk about all that much in a church like High Point— is what is salvation for? We, because we believe in personal salvation, as we should, that's what the Bible teaches us to believe in, we, we know a lot about what we're saved from, but we don't often talk a lot about what we're saved or rescued to. Right? And we also sometimes don't get a strong sense of the continuity from the very beginning of creation to the very end of redemption, what our identity is all the way along. I brought this up at a staff retreat a little while back, and I said, uh, you've got one word to say what we Christians are now. Like, you have one word to cover everything that we are. What's the word? Right? Right? So it has to be an identity word, and it's got to cover everything. Right? So some of them said things like son or daughter, or redeemed or saved, or the cleverest one was ambassador. That's pretty good, right? It's pretty broad. But the one I submitted to them that I thought was the most, the most broad covering everything actually is the word stewardship, or, or that we're, a st- what we're stewards. Now, I know some of your eyes are already glazing over because like archaic, archaic English word, he's going to start quoting Chaucer in a minute. But it, it turns out that the concept of a steward or stewardship comes up a, a lot in the Bible in some really key places, right? We know it's the general term because Erastus was the city steward in Rome, Right? We, and that just means like director of public works or treasurer. But he uses the word steward. And then we see it in how the church should respond to leaders like Paul. He says, this is how you should think about me. 
him and his, the people of ministry, that we're stewards of the mystery of God. And then an overseer, like elders of the church, people who have authority in the church. He says, first and foremost, whatever their character would be, which he gets to in the following verses, he says, what they are is God's steward. So you can't even understand what the local church is, what a pastor is, or a missionary, or an elder, or any of those things. We can't understand any of that without understanding what a steward is. And generally speaking, the Bible translations are getting away from even using this word. For example, in the NIV translations that we have in the pews, in um, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it says, now, Paul's writing, he says, now it is required of those who have been given a trust must prove faithful, which is a tortured translation of a fairly simple verse. And the ESV, it's much simpler because it just uses the word steward. It says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Right? Now, Part of the issue here is people don't—the word isn't used in common English as much anymore, but, the, but part of the issue is, is there another word that means everything this one does? Right? If you read through the New Testament, the word most often translated instead of steward is the word manager, which, which actually leaves out a ton of meaning of what a steward is. Right? All stewards are managers, but not all managers are stewards. And some of the most key ideas built into the idea of being a steward— aren't in the concept of manager. So there's, there's some words and ideas in the Christian faith that we're just going to have to learn. Words like regeneration and justification and discernment and discipleship and stewardship. Now, wh one way to get at this is to, say, is to say this. What do you answer when people say, what do you do? Now, you may have heard sermons before. I have said things like this, where it's like, you know, that's such a reductive question because it, like, limits you to, just, like, just your job, and that's really not all you are. And, right, I've said, I've said that myself, right? But one of the reasons why people ask that is because it's actually incredibly revealing. It's what you've chosen to do with your life. It's what you give the best hours of your day to. It's, it's a really big deal. And there's some of us who love telling people what we do because we, like— we own a business, or we're teachers and they're obliged to treat us as saints, or there's all kinds of stuff that we were like, yeah, I'll tell you what I do. But then there's other people that are like, it's a little awkward, like stay-at-home moms. They don't really want to say stay-at-home mom, and it's a little pretentious to say domestic engineer, and you're kind of sort of caught between the two, but they know that their work is super important, right? Or, or people that just like— you know, they just—they're day laborers. They maybe swing a hammer, they earn minimum wage, or they like—they drive a truck around. And like that question is not their favorite question. And so for everybody on planet Earth who is a human, God basically says, when you get right down to it, we all do the same work. So next time somebody asks you what you do, just to mess with people a little bit, try saying, I'm an economist. Or more fun, I'm a venture capitalist. Or an investment manager. Because when we read the Bible carefully from beginning to end, the one thing that is common to all of us is that we're all farmers because we're all cultivators. And we're all economists. We all have something to invest that we're investing in a certain way to try to get certain outcomes that God wants. We're all doing the same kind of work. We're all economists in that sense. Part of the reason for this is the Greek word in the New Testament that's translated— um, like, um, translated as steward is the Greek word oikonomia, which comes from two words, 
oikos, which means house, and nomos, which means law. Now, sometimes putting together compound words to figure out what they mean doesn't work. Like the word butterfly, for example. Butterfly. Oh, I get what that is, right? That doesn't—it doesn't always work. But sometimes compound words are put together so that you will understand what the compound word means better. And this is one of those words. The oikonomos is the person who is the law of the house. They're the person with authority over everything that is within the household or the scope of responsibility, and they run it all. Right? And this has been true since, since we were created. In fact, the idea that we are stewards isn't something that we are because we're Christians. The fact that we're stewards is something that we are because we're humans. Every human, according to the Bible, is a steward. I could go a long way into that, but just suffice it to say this. The reason it appears in the Bible that God created and tells us about creation as a seven-day process— that he created for six days, and that he rested for one day. I mean, Augustine said in the fourth century, he said, listen, is there any reason to believe that an omnipotent God couldn't have created in nine seconds? Everything. Just the way it is. Just now. Why six days? Why lay it out like that? Why tell it that way? Or why do it that way? And the answer was because it was intended to look forward to the human work week that he would lay out in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, that we are workers— and so God is a worker. He is a cultivator, a creator, an inventor, a maker. He works six parts, and he rests, or in his case, he ceases for one. And then he creates creatures in his image, and he gives them dominion over his creation and rulership. That is, he sends them out to be farmers and economists. He gives us the oikonomia. We become the house rulers, all with a particular scope of authority based on what we have. And so when we understand that, we can understand that a steward, stewardship means two main things. A steward is somebody who owns nothing, but who governs everything. It is someone who is under the authority of some other right authority— that is, there is always a master, somebody in, ch in charge and who owns, and the steward is always serving that person's interests with their goods. But they're also in charge of everything. There are a number of Old Testament examples of this. Joseph is a good example, because the relationship of master and steward is not necessarily a master-slave relationship in the Bible. In many cases in Jesus' parables, the person who's a steward is often a slave, but not always. In fact, what we'll find later is, is that many stewards in family businesses are sons and daughters. For example, in, in Joseph's life, when he becomes Potiphar's steward, he's in charge of everything in the household, and at that point he's a slave. Then he gets in trouble for something he didn't do, and he becomes the steward of the prison. Now he's a convict. Then, through God's enablement to interpret dreams, he becomes prime minister under only Pharaoh himself. He is no longer a slave or a convict. He has all the power in Egypt. He can say to his family, don't even worry when you move to Egypt for me to care for you. Don't even bring your belongings because all the best of Egypt will be yours. He's enormously wealthy, but he's still under authority. Moses is a really good example of this as well. Because we think of Moses as being great because he's a prophet and because he's a deliverer. And if you look at all the stuff Moses did, Moses had a pretty broad job description. Parting seas, 
facing international despots, sorting out arguments, praying for flocks of quail. I mean, like, there's all kinds of stuff Moses did. And when some people attacked him personally, there's a point where Moses says, listen, there are other people who hear from me, prophets and people, and I speak to them darkly and in prophecies and, and things that they have to sort of figure out. There's only one person on planet Earth I speak to face to face. I speak just straight up intelligible sentences, and we talk, and it's Moses. And the reason he gives for that is because Moses is faithful in all my house. You hear that language? That is explicit. That's not prophet language. That's stewardship language. Moses was a utterly faithful steward. He realized he didn't own the Jewish people. He didn't own salvation. Like, even when he gets in an argument with God, he's like, God, these are my people. These are your people. Like, he throws the fact that he's a steward up in God's face. So they're not mine. I'm the steward, remember? And because of that, God counts him faithful. And later on, in the book of Hebrews, when Jesus is compared to Moses, he is not—it doesn't say Jesus is a greater prophet than Moses, and he has come. Jesus is better than Moses because he's a greater prophet. That's not what it argues. In Hebrews chapter 3, it says about Jesus, it says Jesus was faithful as one to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So he's taking that verse out of numbers about Moses' greatest identity as a faithful steward, and he's saying the thing that's greater about Jesus is Jesus was just as faithful in everything God gave him to do as Moses was. But— he didn't just rule the house because he also created the house. He's even better than Moses. But the, con the commendation that Jesus receives isn't that he's a greater prophet. It's that he's a greater steward than any other person who's ever existed because Moses was the best and Jesus is even better. When you get to the parables where Jesus tells all these stories about things, and in many of them there are masters and servants, and many of them the people are called stewards particularly, and in many of them things go really well for the stewards. For example, there's this one in Matthew 20 where this guy gets all these stewards, servants to come and work on his property. And the people who work like 10—there's some that work 10 hours, and there's some that he goes gets the last hour of the workday. He's like, come on, let's work. And they come, they work one hour. And you know what the master does? He has all these two are paid, paid equally. They all get a day's wage. We don't know why. Maybe it's because they all have a day's needs when they get home. So he doesn't even tell us. And people complain. He's like, look, I'm the master. I'll do whatever I want with my money. And if I want to be generous, I'm going to be generous. Which is meant to tell us that Jesus the master is incredibly generous with the stewards. Even the ones that are idiotic laborers. Right? The guy goes back to get new laborers four times. Like these guys clearly had not gotten out of bed until like 5 p.m. Right? And he's like, come on, let's work. Here's a day's wage. He's enormously generous. But there are certain instances in which things go very badly for the stewards. And in every case, it is the exact same reason. And Jesus repeats it in many and varied stories so that we would be crystal clear on the one context in which things go very badly for stewards. And it's this. It's when they think they're the master. Whenever the steward claims the place of master, 
things go downhill really, 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 really fast. And I know. The, the most sort of famous example of this is Luke 20, where Jesus is talking to religious teachers and, and the Jewish leaders, and he says there was a guy who went out and he built a vineyard. He, he bought the land, but then he also dug it all out and took out the stones and cultivated it and planted the vines and put up the trellises. He put a wall all the way around it. He created the press. He built a tower. He did all the work of founding the entire business, and then he rented it out to people who would just grow the grapes and pick them and make the wine. And then he went away. And every time he sent somebody to get some of the money for all the produce of the land, they would like throw the guy out, beat him up. They, they killed a few of them. And finally he's like, okay, they will respect my son. And so he sends his son and they're like, hey, if we kill this guy, he's the heir. We'll get to keep this after the old guy dies, right? And so they kill the son and throw him in the garbage. And Jesus says, okay, how do you think this story ends? He says, surely the master will gather up all of his troops and go and kill everyone. That's how that one ends. And everybody's like, hmm. And everybody knows and is angry at Jesus because he knows that he was telling basically the religious people that. They had taken control of the Jewish faith and made it whatever they wanted it to be. Not, and they didn't have any room for him. That is— he was the master of who God is and like what that means. He was the one bringing the message of the gospel and they were like, no, we have it. That is, they were claiming to be masters. And he's like, yeah, it doesn't. When you claim to be master, when you're a steward, it doesn't go well. In fact, the entire story of salvation is that. The entire story of salvation is humans refuse their place as stewards and claim the place of master. That's where sin, fall, damnation all originates. And all of salvation ends with God becoming Lord again of all things and all the stewards that will fall under his great rule love and enjoy being his stewards while being his children. All of salvation is that story. What that means is, is that there's basically two attitudes that we can have about stewardship and really only two attitudes. The first is, is the attitude of Pharaoh, right? Moses comes, he says, look, these aren't your people. They're God's people that you have enslaved. You need to let them go. And Pharaoh's response was, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Later on in the book of Proverbs, another king who was much wiser than Pharaoh sees how, what wealth does to people, and he can see what his wealth is doing to him. And he tells God, give me neither poverty nor riches because— if I'm too rich, I might grow arrogant and say the same thing Pharaoh did, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? That is, if I get too much money, I'll start thinking I'm the master. And I know that's what happens to people. So please don't let that happen. And that's essentially the attitude of humanity. When God makes his claim, he says, I'm the master, and we, you are all stewards. And he says, you need to accept that that is your identity. And we go, what? No, I own this. This is all mine. This is my life. Right? But the other one actually is the one in Psalm 8, where the psalmist, which is David, who owns quite a lot, says, 
O Yahweh, our master. Because notice, these are two different words. See how they're spelled differently in terms of caps? It's because in Hebrew, this is Yahweh and this is Adonai. This is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, our God. And this is the generic word meaning master. If you go to a synagogue this Friday, they will pray the prayers and they say, O Lord, our master, king of the universe, Adonai. It's stewardship language, even though he's king. O Yahweh, our master, how majestic is your name in the whole world, right? You've so ordained things, mainly in all of creation, and the way you've set everything up, that where I get to when I think about that is, what is man or what is humanity that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, right? You see how that's a very different attitude? The first attitude is, who is God that he should tell me what to do? The second attitude is God is so big that human says, who am I <laughs> that you would pay any attention to me? Those are very different attitudes, and both of them are predicated on one question. Do you believe into the marrow of your bones that God's name, who he is and everything related to him, is majestic? That's the, quest, the question it all comes down to. You see, because if, if the name of if God, if God himself and everything about him and everything you've ever heard about him that's true, is majestic, if it is so above, so beautiful, so great, your heart will say, who am I that you would care anything about me and give me anything to do? And then to know that in creation, God gave us dominion over everything in our hands, that that's his creation. That is, his majesty is demonstrated to us by how amazing his creation is, and then he takes that creation and he gives it to you. You see, there's, there's one attitude that says, this stuff is mine. There's another very different attitude that says, how could you give this to me? How could you give me a life and breath and whatever health that I have, and things, food to eat, and things in my hands, and responsibilities in the world. Most of us resent our responsibilities. David was like, how could you, how could you give me anything? How could you care about me? And how could you make me something? And the, the question really comes out, and, and he says in Psalm 84, he's like, he said, I would rather live one day with God than a thousand on my own. And I would rather be the doorman butler in God's house than be king of my own. Let me just ask you. Here's David's attitude. Here's Pharaoh's attitude. Where is your attitude? Where is yours? It needs to get here for all of us. Otherwise, we will always be sliding into who is the Lord? that he should tell me what to do. A steward owns nothing and governs everything. Which means a steward owns nothing. You and I own nothing. Nothing. Not our own lives, not our homes, our cars, our children. Our parenting models, our good names, our positions of authority, our right not to stop and listen to annoying people who want to talk at us, our privacy, 
our leisure. Am I meddling yet? Our spouses, our clothes, our breath, nothing. See, that's the only thing we have to get straight for human existence. Simple isn't easy. In your, um, in your bulletins this morning, there's a card. Please take it out. The band is going to play two songs. And during those two songs, I want to give you an opportunity to pray and think, what have you been acting like you own? I imagine you'll be able to come up with something. You may need a bigger card just to pull out the sermon note thing. It's fine. Um, Write on here some spattering of answer to that question. One thing, if it's a key thing, or a bunch of things to show that maybe your whole life is going in that direction. And And then if you believe, come up and lay it down in one of these spots. There's two up there in the balcony. There's one here. There's two there. Write on here, what an, ob- an objective observer of your life, like God or you, if you could just watch your life, what would you think from that that you think you own? Right down here and bring it up and lay it down before God because it's His. He's the master. We are the stewards. So I want to encourage you as an act of faith, take back your identity. Holy Spirit, please come and convict us, teach us, change us, encourage us, strengthen us, and illuminate in our minds the truth that your name is majestic in all the earth. Who am I, who are we as people that you would put anything in our hands, especially the very creation of your majesty? And who are we that we would think that we own it? So please, Lord, Show us what we should write. Teach us how we should pray and lead us to repentance and produce in us the freedom and the joy that it should produce in us. Amen. So if a steward is someone who owns nothing but governs everything, and if a minute ago we said that means a steward is someone who owns nothing— With the same amount of emphasis by which we can say, biblically and spiritually, a steward owns nothing, with the same amount of emphasis we have to say, a steward governs everything. The steward is the oikos nomos, the law of the house, with full authority, with complete discretion. A steward owns nothing, but they govern everything. Everything that is within their household, anything that was in, is within their scope, whatever is in their hands, it is yours and mine to govern, to rule, to take dominion, to cultivate, to invest, to invent. I think sometimes we don't see that as much as we don't see that we own nothing. Which means there's two steps in embracing stewardship. One is to lay everything down. We own nothing. There's a second step. That is, all those things must be taken back up again. Think about it this way. Where are you going to take all the stuff you laid down? Was there like a Jesus warehouse somewhere you can take it all to? Like, well, uh, my car belongs to Jesus. Well, where do you park that exactly? Right? Everything 
that's in our hands justly, we don't own, but we have authority over. And if we're going to be faithful stewards, not only do we need to recognize we don't own it, we need to recognize that we, are, we have responsibility to invest it, to use it, to cultivate it. it. It's in our authority. It's not in anybody else's. There's nobody else who can steward it for you. In one sense, <laughs> there's a great irony to most church sermons about stewardship, that it's giving money at church. The minute you give money at church, you give it into somebody else's stewardship. Right? That's my, that was my responsibility. Thanks! Right? Don't stop giving. But like part of giving at church is making an investment, right? You're taking some of what you're steward over and you put it in a particular investment that is the work of the gospel in the local church. That's just one of your investments. You have a larger portfolio. And all of those things, many of those investments, you manage directly. And you have to take them all up again. That is, it says in 1 Corinthians 4 2, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy or faithful. That is, the first step is faith, realizing who the master is and who the steward is. Believing in our real identity and knowing who we are in Christ and with Christ. And then faith, if it's real, will always flower into faithfulness. Right? Which is, faithfulness as a steward in all of our existence means basically that we invest everything that's in our hands with the master's intention in mind. And that doesn't mean like an accountant. It doesn't mean that God's going to be like, where's every penny of this? Almost all investments fail. I don't know if you realize this. Something like 75% of new business starts fail. Do you know what, um, do you know the success rate that, um, that venture capitalists are hoping for? They have a really good year. It's between 1 in 20 and 1 in 30. They're thrilled. If they hit it, 1 in 20 or 1 in 30, they're, they'll lose all their money on all the rest of them. But if they hit a Google man, they're happy. Most investments fail or do not produce what we hope they will. That isn't what dictates whether or not we're a good person. It doesn't dictate whether or not we're faithful. It doesn't dictate whether or not we have real faith. The question is whether we put the seed in the soil. Not always whether or not we pick the tomato. There are two selfishnesses that can lead us to not caring about stewardship, that can stop us from embracing, taking up our stewardship, right? The first is, we might just call it obliviousness. Just not really knowing this is who we are. This is a big part of a lot of people's lives. It's a big part of a lot of Christians' lives. We think of ourselves as sons and daughters of God, which means we should like be close to Jesus and that that's what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to be rightly human. That's all it means. To live out the image of God that God put in us, to live rightly towards our Creator, to embrace His redemption that brings us back into it, to be re-released into our creation intention, to be stewards of all things, and in this present age, as stewards, to be also ambassadors wherever we go. Wherever we find ourselves stewarding, we are also ambassadors to all humans we interact with to call them back to their stewardship. And under the one who was faithful in all God's house, Jesus the Christ. Now, in Luke 16, there's this great parable that has puzzled Bible interpreters for a long time. A lot of ink has been spilt over this one. It's called the parable of the dishonest manager. Okay? And so there's this guy who is the manager of a very rich man. 
And it, so Jesus says, it came to the rich man's attention that he'd been wasting his money. And so he calls in the steward. He's like, what is this you're doing, right? What the heck is going on in modern parlance? Um, Turn in the books. You can't be the manager anymore. And so this guy realizes he's kind of middle-aged. He doesn't really have the back for digging ditches anymore. He's been an important guy for a while. He doesn't really want to go to begging, right? But he doesn't have any other skills. And if you get dismissed as a steward for being dishonest and wasting everything, it's hard to get another job in the field, as they say, right? And so he goes, here's what I'll do. So he calls in his master's debtors. And he's like, okay, take your bill and change it in your favor. So if you, own a, if you owe him a thousand gallons of olive oil, make it 800. You owe him 800 bushels of wheat, let's make it 400. And these guys are like, I like this policy, right? And so meanwhile, these guys are all coming in now, and like the charwoman walks by and like realizes what's happening, and she goes and tells the master. So the master comes in, and like this guy's like still stuffing papers back into the folder, and he walks in, and Jesus is like, and then? And everybody is just kind of waiting for one of two outcomes. The master has muscle with him, and they all draw their swords and cut the guy into 170 pieces because you die for this kind of stuff. Or two, they drag him off by his ears to debtor's prison where he will rot the rest of his life. Those are the two ways that story ends. And they're waiting for which one it is. And Jesus says essentially this. The master walks in, catches him red-handed, and that's what he does. Finally. Finally. You've finally gotten the most basic principle of stewardship. You see, because this guy just stole like thirty to seventy thousand dollars. This guy's a really rich guy, and his steward's been wasting money. He may have lost this guy a couple million. What's seventy thousand dollars? I mean, it's it's a joke. You see, the difference is between wasting and shrewdness. He's not happy that the guy was dishonest, but his dishonesty was at least shrewd. And before, he was wasting, which is just as wicked, but it's not even shrewd. It's like when people are wicked and stupid. That's not better than being wicked and shrewd. He's like, at least you realize that the point of stewardship is stewarding. Using resources to do something. Using assets to accomplish something. Using wood to build something. That when you sweep, you need a broom. That when you cook, you need a pot. Like, you finally connected with the basic concept here. It only took being a thieving jerk to get you there. Integrity is the second principle. (laughs) And Jesus is like, how many people in the world— know nothing about God, nothing about Jesus, use their wealth strategically to get stuff for themselves, to make friends for themselves, friends who can open doors for them. And yet how many believers in the light are completely oblivious to how everything in their hands could be invested so that they can have friends in heaven, that they can invest for eternity everything that's in their hands? Just oblivious to it. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of us who God would love to walk up to us <laughs> for whatever our background of investing is with him and, and instead of kill us, go, okay. <laughs> That's a good first step. Just realizing you have to do something. Now let's take do something and put it together with you own nothing, but you're in charge of everything. The first step is you, we just have to get past the obliviousness that we just don't even know we're stewards, right? And the, the second is what you might just call dismissal. 
Um, in Luke 9, in, a lot of people are familiar with the story in Luke 25 of the parable of the talents, right? One guy gets 10, one guy gets 5, one guy gets 1, they invest it in mobile, right? A less known version of that is told in Luke 19, where there's a guy who is summoned into a distant country to be crowned king over a particular region. And so he goes to this faraway country to, be rule, to be rule, become the ruler, and he brings some of his servants together, and he gives them all a minna, which is about three months' wage if you're a laborer. Ten, twelve thousand dollars. And he, go, he says, invest this while I'm gone. I'm going to go away. And so while he leaves, a bunch of the servants get together and they write letters to the king. And they're like, this guy's a tailor-repairable manager. We don't want him to be our king. He's kind of a jerk. Please don't crown him king. We're perfectly faithful to you. We don't need this guy, right? And all those letters make it to the king. So he gets there and the master is crowned king. And the guy gives him all the letters. Right? He's like, yeah, just, you know, just people that are, have bad attitudes. So the master gets back and he's like, he brings the servants together. He says, okay, listen. Account. What have you done with the minna I, give, I gave you, right? And the first guy comes back and he says, Look at your minna. It has earned ten more. He doesn't even reference himself at all. He doesn't like, look what I did. He was like, your, it's your minna, and it is what produced the increase. Just like with the, just like with the vineyard, it's the plants that make the grapes. We just pick them. Right? And so he says, this is what happened. I earned you 10 more. And, the, and here's what the guy says. Great, you are faithful in this little thing. I'm going to give you, I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities because I'm looking for responsible, trustworthy people. And you're clearly one of them. Another guy's made five. Same thing, five cities. Another guy comes up, he's like, listen, you're, I mean, you're like most bosses. You like, you want return in places you don't work. You're always reaping where you don't even sow. And you're just kind of a hard dude. And so I knew that you would want your money back. So I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth. Here's your money. And the guy, instead of quibbling about, instead of defending himself, because I don't know if you've ever argued with your boss. They usually don't defend themselves. They're just like, okay, you're fired, right? He's like, look, I'm not even dealing with this. Even if I am the guy you say I am, right? You know I want to return then. And there are banks that pay interest, and you didn't even do that. Here's what really happened. Now, he doesn't say it quite this way. You have to read it in because, you know, ancient years told stories— they demand a little creativity. Here's what really happened. You wrote a letter to ask me not to be made king, hoping that I wouldn't be made king and maybe I'd be killed in a foreign country and not pay back, so that this could be your money and you didn't want to risk your money. But it wasn't your money. And so it turns out he gets dragged out and killed. It's a really nice ending. The, the point is, is that it ends with a very interesting verse that makes most people feel profoundly uncomfortable, which is, he says, Take the minna, the money, from this guy who has one and give it to the guy who has ten. To which everybody responds, he's already got ten! And the master says, right! Now that I'm king, the people who have much are going to have more, and the people who have little are going to have less. To which everybody goes, that is not a good economic theory! But you have to understand it in the context of the parable. Now, some people have noticed that at other places in the gospel, like, you know, a few chapters earlier, Jesus had said, in judgment, right? He's like, listen, in the last day in judgment, people are going to come from the north, south, and the east, and the west, and they're going to come to the banquet of the kingdom of God. And in that day, many who are first are going to be last, and many who are last are going to be first. Now, that sounds different, right? It sounds like— the people who have won, like the peons, they're going to be like catapulted forward because God likes the poor, right? And the people who are like big shots, they're going to be actually put to the bottom. So which is it, right? Is God for the poor and against the rich or isn't he? 
Do you know? I don't know. I just am asking. I'm just kidding. (laughs) If we pay attention to the context of both passages, they're both saying the exact same thing. Did you notice that? They're both saying the exact same thing. And if you understand the concept of stewardship, it's really obvious. If you read them separately, you're like, I just thought I read, right? Here's what he's saying. In the first passage, he's talking to religious leaders, and they think they have the Torah, they have the Bible, they have the message of God, they have the covenant, they're in, and these other pagan peoples who don't know anything about God are all out, and they're going to be first. Well, here's the problem. Jesus was basically telling them, you have the Bible, and you don't believe it. (laughs) They don't have the Bible, and they believe it about as good as you. Who do you think is going to go where in line here? That is— It was their job to go out and share the message of the gospel so that the maximum amount of people could come in. They weren't doing their job. They forgot which they were. You see, the reason in the last day many who are last will be first and many who are first will be last is because there are many who promote themselves as masters when they are stewards. And there are many who who accept and realize that in their humble position, they have the same work as anybody else. They're a steward. That you can be a poor steward, you can be a disabled steward, you can be a dumb steward, but you can still be a steward. And if you know you're a steward, you're ahead of everybody who doesn't know they're a steward. And so, many who put themselves up as first, that is, I'm a master, not a steward, will be last. And many who are last, the weakest and poorest in the world, but who know that they're stewards and are faithful in the little that they have, will be first. The division is whether or not you know you're a steward or not right? It's the same thing in the other parable. What's the difference between the steward that got condemned and the steward that was praised? Was it really the difference in money? It's not, because we know that the guy who raised five instead of ten got the exact same reward. The master was pleased with both of them. In fact, in his argument, he basically claims that if he would have got interest, he would have been happy enough, right? He gives people who work the last hour of the day the full day's wage. The difference was— Whether you're rich or poor, the same standard is applied to you. God favors the poor generally because in the world we live in, the rich get the breaks and people bow down to them because they want to be made masters too. And so our bias has to be towards the poor because the poor tend to get crushed even when they try to be masters and the people who are rich tend to make it as masters for a little while because they have a little bit more ability to make themselves so. But the actual divine standard of salvation and judgment, what faith really looks like for everybody is the same no matter how poor or rich you are. Do you know that you're a steward or do you think you are a master? That's it. And everybody rich and poor is subject to the same misunderstanding and is subject to the exact same criteria. In fact, in Matthew 25, it's the guy who only gets one talent who gets the fewest resources that gets judged. Right? That's not very nice. He's like a victim. But you see, in in Jesus' world, no. That's not what it comes down to. It doesn't matter how much resource you have. What it comes down to is, do you believe that whatever you have belongs to the king and should be invested in his name? Or don't you? And wealth is irrelevant to that question. But sometimes the rich are less eager to hear it, and sometimes the poor are much more eager to hear it, which is why Jesus could also say the gospel is good news for the poor. Because of their place, they tend to recognize it. So 
Because remember, in Matthew 20, 10, 42, Jesus said one time, he said, listen, if anybody gives somebody a cup of cold water because they're thirsty, because they're my disciple, that is, they, they act as a steward because I'm the master, even if it's one cup of cold water, they will never lose their reward. Now, what, why would you say something like that? That's a very emphatic point. The smallest possible stewardship is rewarded incredibly disproportionately. And yet, when we set ourselves up as masters, and so we have to take up the water, the vineyard, the everything, right? And it's important to remember and realize that a steward can be a slave. And because of sin, and because of how much smaller we are than God in creation, we don't really deserve a better place than that of slave. God owns everything. We own nothing. But stewards can also be employees, and stewards can also be children of the master. Right? Children in the family business. Helpers in dad's work. And the kind of stewardship that we're invited to is the same throughout the entire Bible. Stewardship is always stewardship. There is a master, and there is a steward. There is the person in charge, that is the owner, and there's the person who is the, the law of the house. But the status of the steward can change dramatically. And though David is right in Psalm 8 that God's name is so majestic that why would he pay any attention to us at all? That why would he even know that we exist in a universe as big as ours? But yet the great steward Jesus came in order to make us a particular kind of steward. Not a damned steward. Not a convict steward. Not even an employee steward. He came to make us what our father Adam and our mother Eve were when they first became stewards. He came to make us sons and daughters of the one whose name is majestic in all the earth. He came to include us in the family business of all of creation. He came to reinstate us and re-envision us to become the entrepreneurs in all of creation we were meant to be, both in all the practical workings of creation and in the additional work of being ambassadors for redemption. And so this is the second application. Come get your card. As we sing these next two songs— and you pray about this and think about this a little bit more. It's not enough to lay it down. We talk all kinds of rot about laying stuff down to Jesus and giving things to Jesus and blah, 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 blah. And you have to do that. But just as much, you can't park this stuff in the Jesus garage somewhere. It's under your care. It's under your authority. You are the oikonomos. You are the ruler. Within the household of your scope, it is your responsibility. So come and get your card. Come and put everything, not just under his control, but say before him and speak before him and act before him that you are moved that one so majestic would give into your dominion anything. And so therefore, everything you will invest and cultivate for his dominion. Holy Spirit, please move in us now. Convict and convince us. 
illuminate where we have misunderstandings and help us to have memory of this. Help us to remember back our identity through your revelation, to, to realize what we were made to be in ages past, that we are an ancient creation of yours and one that was made to be something that bore your image in all the, in all the world. Help us to become cultivators and inventors and investors. Help us to do everything we do like it's, like it's your thing. And help us now to take up these cards and what they represent because we aren't just giving these things to you. We are investing these things on your behalf. I pray in Jesus' name.